The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. Our scripture reading for this morning is Luke 10, verses 25 through 37. If you don't have your own copy of scripture, you can find one under the chair in front of you. And if that's what you use, it's on page 816. When you're ready, please stand for the reading of God's word. Luke 10, starting in verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho And he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he sent him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, we're picking back up this morning in our uh, little five-part sermon series on the heart of making disciples. We had an intentional stop last week when I was out, um, an intentional in the sense of Brady came up and he inserted right in the middle of this idea of the heart of making disciples, just asking the question, what is the gospel? Um, It's a biblical question that we need to have a biblical answer to. And I appreciate you, brother, doing an excellent word and laying the foundations from the word on what the Bible says about this. We cannot fill in the blank however we want to in regard to the answer to that question, but we must ask uh, God to make clear to us what he has said, and very thankfully he has made that clear. So what we're going to do is continue to ride on the coattails of what we have seen come before, and this morning we're going to look at a sermon that I'm just simply titling, Everyone Has a Neighbor. So we want to be intentional. We want to be men and women of prayer. We also then want to see how does this begin to work itself out in everyday life by recognizing everyone has a neighbor. So our main idea this morning as we look to the parable classically known as the parable of the Good Samaritan, we're going to see this, that everyday disciples will prove to be a neighbor. Remember, that was the question that Jesus asked the lawyer at the very end, who proved to be a neighbor. What we're going to see is that everyday disciples will prove to be a neighbor as they welcome others like Christ has welcomed them. 
That's a phrase that the Apostle Paul uses over in Romans 15, talking about how do we apply the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to our lives. And so I'm stitching those realities together from Romans 15 and from Luke 10, saying again that everyday disciples will prove to be a neighbor as they welcome others like Christ has welcomed them in the gospel. So I'm going to pray for us. We're going to dive in, and we're going to turn our attention to Luke chapter 10 as we begin to just lay the foundations of what does this neighboring thing look like. You're going to hear me use back and forth synonymously the language of neighboring and biblical hospitality. I'm arguing that they are saying the same thing. They're running at the same idea. To be biblically hospitable is to be a neighbor. And to be a neighbor biblically is to run at hospitality in the way that the Bible defines it. The implications for these simple truths are legion. There is a thousand and one ways to be able to apply and run at these things, but we need to lay the foundation for this, and that is our aim this morning. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let's ask the Holy Spirit to empower the preaching of his word so that we might leave here changed this morning. So let's do this. Father, we come to you this morning. Our aim is to see you magnified. We want to see the Son our Lord, Jesus, who is Savior Christ and Lord, magnified. And so we recognize our need for you, Holy Spirit, to come and empower the preaching of the word. Lord, would you make the gospel, the good news of Christ, the great Savior, who loves to save sinners, would this good news come to us this morning, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit, and land on us with full conviction so that we go out today convinced from the scriptures that the average everyday call of everyday disciples is to welcome others as we've been welcomed by the Lord Jesus Christ, neighboring those who are our neighbors. Convince us of these things, Lord Jesus. We ask this not so that our name might be made great, but so that the name of King Jesus might receive the glory, the honor, the worship, the praise that it's worthy to receive. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. So again, if you just want to quickly re-remember where we are at in our series, we've talked about when it comes to making disciples, first, gospel intentionality. We ask that question, who's your one? We are recognizing that according to the scriptures, the importance of one sinner to God. He is after the one. It's the whole 99 sheep, the one that goes astray running after the one. This is something Jesus taught in those parables that we looked at in Luke 15. Then we also transition into saying not only do we want to run after gospel intentionality, but we realize that we are called to be men and women of prayer. Why? Because Jesus alone is the only one who has the power to open spiritually blind eyes. So as we're trying to go through our days, not adding extra to our plate, but recognizing in the normal rhythms and habits of our lives, what does it look like to just be intentional with these neighbors that we bump into in all the different kinds of neighborhoods in which we live, 
intentionally asking God, are you drawing someone? Can I be used as an instrument in your hands, consistently praying to Christ, recognizing we don't have the power to open spiritually blind eyes. We need him to do this. And now this morning, what we're doing is we're going to build off of gospel intentionality and the idea of our desperate need to rely on Christ in prayer. We come to the idea of neighboring, this category we find in the scriptures called biblical hospitality. And we go this route this morning because when you think of neighboring, when you think of this concept of biblical hospitality, really this is where the rubber of making disciples meets the road. The normal rhythms of our lives, the neighbors we see in our homes, the neighbors we see that we see literally next door, the neighbors we bump to in our workplaces and our places of recreation and the broken places of our city that need to be restored by the Lord Jesus Christ. These are our neighbors. And as our lives just move in and out of these neighborhoods, the rubber of making disciples meets the road in this thing, this reality known as neighboring or biblical hospitality. Think of these elements, this element of intentionality, the element of prayer, and the element of neighboring. Think of it sort of like exercise. Physically speaking, breathing is what sustains exercise. Like if I get convinced that tomorrow I need to go start working out and exercising, but I try to go and exercise and I walk into the gym, throw down my gear, roll up to the rack of weights and go... I'm going to quickly croak, right? Because I'm trying to go about the doing of exercise apart from the breathing. Or if you want to swing the pendulum to the other side where we say, hey, man, we need to be really good at breathing. We're breathing in, we're breathing out, inhaling, exhaling, inhaling, exhaling, these sorts of things. But we realize the inhaling and the exhaling is just more for than existing. We need it to exist, but it's what empowers us to be able to go and be able to do these things that life has called us to do physically speaking. So if you think about physically speaking, the way our bodies work physically, breathing is what sustains the doing of exercise. I want you to see that spiritually speaking, it's the same as it relates to these elements that we've been talking about before us. Think about it. If gospel intentionality and prayer are the air we breathe, where we inhale intentionality and exhale pray, Inhale, Lord, can you help me to be intentional with the gospel in my marriage? I'm exhaling, Lord, we need you in my marriage. As I inhale intentionality, Lord, I want to know how to confess Christ to my children in my own home. I'm exhaling reliance and prayer, inhaling with my neighbor, exhaling reliance and prayer, inhaling the absolute need for Jesus to be intentional within our workplaces or in our places of recreation or wherever it might be, Lord, I need you. That inhale, exhale, what that is, is the air we breathe so that then when it comes to the daily exercise of neighboring, what we're doing is not going in our own strength. We're going in the inhaling and exhaling strength and reliance and all-sufficiency of Christ recognizing that neighboring is the daily exercise sustained by this breathing. Again, if we inhale gospel intentionality, 
and exhale prayer, we are doing this so that we might faithfully exercise the call to make disciples in our everyday lives. That's how these elements are being stitched together before us. That's what I want us to see. So as we turn to neighboring this morning, biblical hospitality as we see it in Scripture and its connection to making disciples, what you need to know is we just have to start somewhere. There's some of us here this morning where this concept is very intuitive. It comes to you easy. You get it, and you're doing it right now. For some of us, this is a foreign concept. It's never been modeled before us, this idea. You don't, don't even have a category for neighboring or hospitality. For other of us, we find us in maybe that middle space where it's like, I, I know about it. I have categories for it. I want to do it. I'm just not quite sure what that looks like. I'm not quite to the place where it's just the normal in and out intentional rhythm of my life. We rec- and I, I recognize, the elders recognize, it. we're all over the map on this. But what we're wanting to do is set the cultural air of Delta that as we begin to go forward, we want to equip you, equip us to be able to walk in ways where just the natural inhale and exhale of our lives just works itself out in the neighborhoods that we find ourselves in, in the seasons of life that just make sense, in the stations of life where the seasons and the schedules are maybe different, whether it's the kind of workplaces we find ourselves in, the neighborhoods we find ourselves in, recognizing that in all of these various neighborhoods, I can guarantee you there's at least one person who doesn't know Jesus. And the question is, God, how can I be a neighbor to this neighbor? How can I neighbor them? How can I go about welcoming them just as Christ welcomed me? In the name of Christ... So that they might taste and see that Christ is good. Know about the grace and mercy, salvation that can be found in Christ. The idea of neighboring in its essence is really not that complicated. Are there people in your life who don't know Jesus? Yes. Can I walk in such a way where I love them and show grace and mercy to them like I've been shown grace and mercy and have been loved by Christ? Yes. The challenge for us, as we're going to see, is that the implications of those two simple realities are legion. They are multitude of what that could even potentially begin to look like. And for many of us, we just need a place to start, to just begin to grasp, who is my neighbor? Let's think about that question. And then begin to go, like, what could this even possibly mean? And that is my hope for today. You will not get all your questions answered. You're probably going to have more questions as a result of what you hear today. But if we can at least just say from Luke 10, we do get a grasp of Jesus leading us to see who our neighbors are. The category is a lot broader than we might think. And what this means for us in way of thinking and acting, then I think what we're doing is we're building on a solid foundation. And that is my hope for us this morning. And so that's what we're going to do. That good somewhere to start is Luke 10 that Bobby Jean read for us this morning. And it's here that Jesus helps us by answering the question, who is my neighbor? That's just point number one. You're going to see that in verses 25 through 29. Jesus is going to be asked, who is my neighbor? And he's going to begin to answer that question. So look in your copy of Scripture, verse 25. Look at what our brother in Christ, Luke, begins to write. And behold, he says, a lawyer 
stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he, the lawyer, answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But... Notice what Luke says. He, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now, it's important to realize, as I've said a couple times now, that the Bible actually says quite a bit about this idea of neighboring, this idea of biblical hospitality. Speaking generally to God's redeemed people, the author of Hebrews encouraged the audience he was originally writing to, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. If you remember, when we were preaching through the book of Hebrews, when we came to this actual verse, we said that that phrase there, show hospitality to strangers, is actually a really unique Greek word. It's a a word that sounds like this, philozenia. And philoxenia means a love of strangers. So if you hear Philadelphia, right, the city of brotherly love, the philo, phila language there is the love language. Xenia is the stranger language. And when you stitch them together, that is what the author of Hebrews is calling us to. Don't neglect to do this. And the reason why he's calling us not to neglect is because it can be easy to neglect showing love, hospitality especially to strangers, and I would argue later, even those close to us. You jump into Romans chapter 12. The Apostle Paul says similar when he wrote to the Roman Christians, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality, he says. Even the Apostle Peter uses this language when he says, show hospitality to one another, and I love this, without grumbling. Why does he need to tell us to do this without grumbling? Because I think we can be grumblers when it comes to the kind of realities you're going to see the Samaritan model before us when it looks like just giving of ourselves generously, sacrificially, of our time, energy, effort, our skills. Being intentional is not always easy. And we can grumble about it, but... Our brother Paul, uh, Peter is encouraging us with that language, show hospitality. Again, all of those words there are philoxenia. But what I want you to see is that biblical hospitality is not just a New Testament reality. These encouragements to show hospitality are born right out of the Old Testament where Yahweh would repeatedly call his people to create various ways to love and care for the stranger the sojourner, the exile, basically their neighbors. See, this is where the heart of our text lies at this morning because when Jesus is engaging the lawyer and the lawyer is coming to him asking questions, you're going to see Jesus refer him back to the capital L law. He's referring him back to the Old Testament. And so the lawyer comes and asks Jesus, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? That's what kickstarts this conversation. Jesus, you notice, doesn't give an answer, but actually asks him a question, run back to him. And he counters to the lawyer, well, what is written in the law? How have you read it? 
And the reason why Jesus is doing this is because the lawyer here isn't like a Chris Flynn kind of lawyer. This is like a theological student. This is a professional student who knows God's law inside and out. That is what is meant here when it's talking about lawyer. And notice that the lawyer answers in a way that makes sense to what he knows. He takes the first five books of the Old Testament, summarizes them down into two verses that pick up this idea of love. He summarizes all of the Old Testament law by quoting Deuteronomy 6, saying, well, first and foremost, we're called to love God with like the entirety of our being. He's like, yes, you've got that one right. And then he jumps into Leviticus 19 and then says, second, we are to love neighbor as self because of the right response, basically, the way God has loved us. And notice, Jesus confirms his answer. You look in the other places in the Gospels, when Jesus is giving similar kind of teaching, he sums up the greatest commandment, love God and love neighbor. And so he looks at the lawyer and says, listen, you've pegged it. You've got it right. You have answered correctly. Do this and live. Now, when you look at the lawyer in verse 25, usually when we have these interactions with Jesus and these people, we get very little detail about who is asking these sorts of questions. But here in Luke, we actually get two very unique pieces of information about him. There's two things we do know. First is this. In his approach to Jesus, he tells us in verse 25, his motive was to try to test Jesus. His motive was to try to come and trip him up to catch Jesus out and really to make Jesus look like a fool. But if you notice down in verse 29... Luke also tells us that he desired to justify himself. Luke lets us know these things about the lawyer because as it relates to love your neighbor as yourself, one of those last pieces of command that he rightly speaks, Jesus is now going to recognize and engage with the motives of this guy's heart. Apparently, the lawyer wanted to finagle his way free of what this command means for his everyday life. When he heard the love neighbor as self and Jesus says, you've nailed it, you have correctly summarized God's law through these two verses, there's something going on in the heart of the lawyer to where he pings and zooms in on the love neighbor as self reality. And Luke gives us insight to his heart saying he wanted to justify himself in this moment. And what's going on is it seems that the lawyer is very happy to be all about the love your neighbor command only so long as he's allowed to define who that neighbor is. See, most people are happy to say, I've got neighbors and I love my neighbors, but the natural drift of our heart is to love those who just look like us, speak like us, think like us, believe like us, vote like us, same color of skin as us, this kind of stuff. And so what we want to do is be happy to say, well, I've got all kinds of neighbors, but we want the ability and the freedom to narrow in on who falls into the category of that neighbor. Thus, the question on the lips of the lawyer to Jesus, who, I think there's supposed to be emphasis on the who, who exactly is that supposed to be, Jesus? Seeking to justify himself, hoping Jesus will come along and say your very narrow view is the exact place where you need to be. 
But what he's about to find out is that his concept of being a neighbor is a little too narrow. In asking the question, one commentator said, the lawyer wants to know how and where to draw the line. Love everybody? Surely there's a limit. Whom exactly am I required to love, Jesus? The question implies that as the lawyer is wrestling with Leviticus 19 and its application to his life, he is assuming that there's such things as non-neighbors out there, people from whom he can safely withhold his love. In other words, the lawyer wants the freedom to be able to sift those around him into one of two categories. I've got neighbors and I've got non-neighbors, and I'm hoping, Jesus, you'll come alongside and narrow in and corroborate my very small view of who neighbors are and corroborate my very large view of who those non-neighbors are. So if someone comes into the lawyer's world not looking like him, talking like him, believing like him, going to his church or seeing things from his political point of view, whatever it might be, this would be Jesus's, a Jesus stamp of approval to not show hospitality, to not love his neighbor. Now, it's interesting that the word neighbor comes from two different words. So if you go and just look up what the word neighbor means, it's actually two words that have been stitched together. That nay portion of neighbor actually means something that is near. And that last part of our word, neighbor, is actually comes from a, a portion of a word called gabor, which means someone who's an inhabitant. So when you stitch those two words together and get neighbor, it's the near inhabitant. It's someone who inhabits your world who's near to you. So what this means is that a neighbor can be anyone who is close by to us, whether that be our neighbors who are right here, like in our homes, right in the neighborhood where we like physically live and our home address is, or it can be our neighbors who are out there because there's some ways in the rhythms of our lives, those inhabitants out there actually become near, like in our workplaces or the places we work out or those places of brokenness in our city where we find ourselves in proximity to. You see, this is the answer to the question, who is my neighbor? We, like the lawyer, tend to want to shrink the neighbor circle very tight. But Jesus is inviting us to see the neighbor circle is actually bigger than we might imagine. The neighborhood reality of who are my neighbors in my neighborhoods is actually bigger than we might imagine. See, the point that I want us to see is this, is that every one of us has a neighbor. And I'm not talking about the lady and the guy across the street from you. So this also means that while we all have neighbors, this means we have neighbors who live in multiple neighborhoods. So for instance, we all have a neighborhood of location, the place where we actually live, right? And in this neighborhood of location, our nearest neighbors would be people like our spouse. Think about the definition of neighbor. It's the near inhabitant. 
I think biblically speaking, you can look within the neighborhood of your location, beginning closest to you, who are some of your nearest neighbors. If you're married, it would be your spouse. If you have children, it would be your children. If you're still living at home, it would be your parents. It would be your siblings. If you're single, you're living out on your own, it'd be your roommates or the person up and down the hallway from you. In this neighborhood of location, it would also include those who are our legitimate, actual, next-door neighbors, those men and women, those image bearers who live right in our same neighborhood. I would argue that we also have a neighborhood of vocation, the places where we work. So when you go to work, while it's true you don't live next to them on the same block, you spend 40-plus hours a week with them. And when you go to work, when you chat with them on Zoom, when you're working remotely or whatever it might be, these people are now inhabitants who are near to you. And they are now considered neighbors, coworkers, managers. These are our neighbors. We also have neighborhoods of recreation, those places just where we go to rest. So this means those places where you go and you do your hobbies with, the running club you're a part of, the places where you go and work out with your friends, that coffee shop barista who serves you your coffee every single morning, all of a sudden these places of recreation, they are neighborhoods with neighbors that are inhabitants near to you as in the rhythms of your life you cross paths with them. Also, though, we find ourselves with neighborhoods of restoration, those places where there's brokenness in our city, meaning image bearers like orphans, image bearers like widows, image bearers like the homeless or women who need help processing, should I get an abortion? These are taking place within our city. And these image bearers are our neighbors as well. Now, I say all of this, and I just can only imagine that when you hear me talking about these various neighborhoods and neighbors, some of us are beginning to sink under the implications of this. Like, I, I, what are you telling me? Like, I'm supposed to be going out and doing and loving and neighbors, and like, I'm just like, well, how am I going to balance this and my time and the season, my contact and all these things? And I would just say, hold on. Like, right, just take a breath, inhale and exhale, step back. What we're just trying to do is not overwhelm here. Remember, what we're trying to do is we're trying to build up categories to help us to see if we've only ever approached the neighboring idea as just the literal next-door neighbor, we've been aiming a little too small. Some of us, before we go out and begin to think about how do I welcome others in the name of Christ like I've been welcomed by Christ, we want to go change the world and change the city, but we haven't even started in our own home yet. So your first place might just be like, what does it even look like for me to neighbor my spouse or to neighbor my child? See, some of us aren't quite there because we are actually, God has brought us and has had people model for us what this looks like. And so it might be less not just doing it in your own home, but then beginning to actually go, like, do I even know the neighbor, name of the legitimate next door neighbor across the street? If you don't, that might be where it's at. Maybe for some of us who have jobs that have us working a lot of hours and the neighborhood you find yourself in the bulk of the time is your neighborhood of vocation, then those coworkers are neighbors that inhabit a lot of time in your world, but do you know anything about them? Have you ever had a meal with them? Do you know their name? Do you know where they're from? Do you know what they like? Do you know what they don't like? Do you know if they have a spiritual background? 
All of these things become gospel doorknobs in the lives of our neighbors. Think about if you were to go and invite your neighbor over into your physical house, the hope is that they would enter into your home by walking through a door, turning a doorknob to gain entry into your life, and through the turning of that doorknob, your lives intersect for that short period of time, and you get to know one another. While there may be physical doorknobs in that neighborhood of location, know that there are a myriad of gospel doorknobs in those other neighborhoods that you find yourself in. When you're at work, you're not necessarily turning doorknobs physically, but there are spiritual doorknobs that can be turned. And a lot of that comes down to asking good questions, listening, being patient, sowing seeds. Do you remember why we're talking about this? So that we can what? Disciple someone from unbelief to belief, And sometimes it's instantaneous, like the Philippian jailer, what must I do to be saved? And sometimes it's seed after seed, doorknob after doorknob after doorknob, begging God, would you please open their spiritually blind eyes as we neighbor them, as you, the great neighbor, have neighbored me. So now all of a sudden, it's just we're laying things before us, right? Just trying to process what this all could look like. So I'm not laying out these neighborhood ideas to overwhelm us. It's just simply to illustrate that every one of us lives in concentric circles of neighbors. We have concentric circles of neighborhoods. And Jesus calls us to make disciples by leaning into that invitation to trust him in prayer, moving with intentionality, and embracing then the privilege of being able to welcome others like Christ has welcomed us. So this, says Jesus, is how we, second point, prove to be a neighbor. All right, that's what he gets into in verses 30 through 37 when he actually gets down to the parable of the Good Samaritan. He's going to ask the question, who do you think proved to be a neighbor? You see, when he gets to this story, he's going to drive his point home to the lawyer. He's going to tell this religious man, the lawyer, a parable about two other religious men who went out of their way to make sure they did not care for the man in front of them, the man who was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, the man who fell among robbers, the man who was stripped, beaten, and left for dead. Right? You're going to see that the priest and the Levite saw this neighbor and went out of their way to make sure they did not neighbor him. Right? And that's what Jesus is going to use to drive the point home. Neither the priest nor the Levite stopped to help the man, although they both saw the man was in desperate need. I thought that was interesting there. Verses 31 and 32. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, passed by the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place, he saw him. So they're fully cognizant of what's going on. It's not like they were ignorant in the truest sense of the word, just did not know what was going on. They saw him and made a conscious decision. I just don't think I'm going to have a care today. And went on down the line. But then in a plot twist, Jesus comes along and says, but let me tell you about a Samaritan. And the reason why this is a plot twist, because one commentator says what most people were probably expecting Jesus to do is say, yeah, the priest, the Levi, the religious establishment. But then here comes along John, Johnny, uh, Johnny Goodshoes here, the, the normal average everyday Jew, 
the run-of-the-mill, assault-of-the-earth kind of guy, and he's going to be the one who's going to show up that religious establishment and show what it means to be, to be a neighbor. But instead of that, Jesus says, actually, it was a Samaritan. And if you grew up in church, you probably know this parable well enough to know that the shock value of Jesus saying a Samaritan would have been like a smack in the face. Like, I'm not trying to say this to be shocking, but they were truly uh, uh, racial half-breeds. That is how the Jewish people approached the Samaritans. When the northern kingdom was invaded in the 700s and taken away, the Assyrians left some Jews there, but they brought in Assyrian folk to inhabit the place. And instead of the Jews holding the line true to the covenant, what they began to do was intermarry. They became ethnically diverse in that way. And the Jews to the south in the southern kingdom looked at them with disdain. You have forsaken the covenant. And that was the beginning of them looking at Samaritans and saying, because of who you are ethnically, you would fall into the non-neighbor category. Most people would be happy to hear Leviticus 19, love your neighbor as yourself, only as long as you're telling me to love other Jews like myself. But then along comes the Samaritan who's going to actually model the mercy and the compassion of Yahweh, unlike the two who you would expect to be able to do that. That's the twist that's going on in this parable. And notice what the Samaritan does. You guys can just see it as you scan your eyes. He binds up his wounds, pours oil and wine, sort of a first century uh, paramedic rescue there on the side of the road, sets him on his own animal, meaning he was now walking while the man was riding. And what's he do? He brings him to an end to care for him. So I think it's just important to see that while it's true that these three men, priest, Levite, Samaritan, they don't actually know this guy. They don't know him personally. It's not like the priest and the Levite saw the man and are like, man, I don't know this guy. And all of a sudden the Samaritan's like, Bob, from across the street, right? And runs over to him and like starts to like, that's not what's going on here. It's just true that right now, as they are going about their business, traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho and back, all of a sudden this man becomes an inhabitant that is near to them. And the last one you'd expect to take care of the man is the very one who goes full-blown extravagance and gives of himself for the good of that man. So by the time you get down to verse 36, Jesus looks at the lawyer and says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor? I thought that was an interesting choice of words for Jesus, proved to be a neighbor. I am positive the priest and the Levite would have had a very extravagant, theologically precise, could pick a gnat off a dog's back out of a thousand yards accurate description of what a neighbor should be according to the Old Testament, but yet failed to prove to be a neighbor. But the Samaritan is the one who proves? So the answer is a no-brainer. The lawyer has to answer correctly. And he says, well, Jesus, the one who proved to be the neighbor, was the one who showed him mercy. It's the one who showed him compassion. And Jesus affirms his answer and said, that's right, I want you to go and do likewise. 
So brothers and sisters, when we take it all together, whether it's the language of hospitality or the language of being a neighbor, just know this. Jesus says the one who proved to be a neighbor was the one who demonstrated neighborly love with his actions. It moved from the realm of verbal speaking and proclaiming, and it coupled with action seen in his life. In other words, the Samaritan's neighboring looked like something. It looked like something. And I think that's the call for us to wrestle with, establishing this morning going forward is like, what does that something look like for our lives? I'm not saying it looks like everything. I'm not saying you've got to save Springfield by yourself single-handedly, but it's just starting to get into the headspace of saying, what does the demonstration of neighborly love look like? It looks like something. And the challenge for us is to say, what does that something look like? You see, neighboring, what I love about this question, in my life, your life, the life of our church, neighboring forces us to ask this question. Have I ever considered how my blank fits into God's plan of redemption? Have I ever considered how my blank fits into God's plan of redemption? Have I ever considered how my marriage fits into that plan of redemption? Have I ever considered how my parenting, have I ever considered how my family relationships fit into that plan of redemption? Have I ever considered how the apartment complex I live in or my physical address on my street, on my block, in my city, in my state, in the United States fits into God's plan of redemption? Acts 17 tells us the fact that the world is his He has created the heavens and the earth, and the plot of land that you find yourself in your country, in your state, in your city, in your neighborhood, in your block, to your home physical address is not a mistake. He has sovereignly ordained your boundaries and set you into the place where you live, whom you're married, who your parents and siblings are, who your next-door neighbor is your coworker, your boss. None of this is happenstance. The sovereign king of the universe has set this into place. And so this neighboring question causes us, should bring us to at least stop and go, okay, God, if that is not happenstance and you have ordered my neighborhoods to look like X, Lord, what does it look like for my fill-in-the-blank to fit into your plan of redemption. Remember, we all have neighborhoods. We all have neighbors in these spheres of life. And the challenge is to see how neighboring in home, your neighbor, work, places of recreation and restoration fit with your schedule, fit with your season of life in ways that make sense because, again, this is where the rubber of making disciples meets the road. Now, it's important to say this. There is a phenomenal way to abuse a text like this. You guys know what I'm, what I'm saying about that? There's a phenomenal way to abuse this text by turning the parable of the Good Samaritan into just to a moralistic do-goodism. To say, go and be like the Good Samaritan and do some good stuff to somebody today. Why don't you? Right? Buckle up, grin and bear it, and go be a do-gooder a philanthropist, 
Be a good moral person. Outmoral the neighbor across the street by just doing good stuff for them. Because that's what the Samaritan did. He had a care and he did some good, compassionate, merciful stuff. He was a good moral man. You be a good moral man. That is a phenomenal way to abuse Luke chapter 10 in the ways that you see here. See, when I'm saying what I'm saying this morning, it's not an invitation for us to be a moralistic, philanthropic kind of people. I am not inviting us to that. No, what I'm saying is I'm inviting us to think these things out, to think out what neighboring looks like, to think out biblical hospitality, what does it look like, to think out welcoming others as we, and here's where you begin to see the key, as we've been welcomed by Christ, by his gracious, merciful welcome, what we are doing is saying, Lord, I want to welcome my neighbors with compassion because you've welcomed me with compassion. I want to welcome my neighbor with grace and with mercy because you have welcomed me with grace and mercy. I want to welcome others because you, Jesus, loved me and cared for me and did what was necessary on the cross, dying, bearing God's wrath for my sin, going into the grave, resurrecting three days later, defeating Satan's sin and death for me so that I might be saved. And what that then compels me to do is not to go out and try to make man the center of my life, but to go out with Christ as the center of my life, saying, because Christ gave me what I did not deserve, and he welcomed me with open arms because he bore my wrath for my sin on that cross. It drives me to want to begin to say, Lord, is there anyone in my neighborhood where I live where I can go and welcome them in the same way? Is there anybody, Lord Jesus, in the neighborhood of vocation where I work, one person that I can go and begin to welcome them in the same way you've welcomed me by your grace and by your mercy? You see, in its essence, I think this is what we see the Samaritan doing. The Samaritan is actually modeling the covenant, steadfast love of the mercy and grace of Yahweh. That's what is being modeled by him there. So when you see the text say of the Samaritan, he had compassion and displayed mercy to his neighbor in that moment. The Samaritan was an image of the compassion and mercy that we find in Jesus. And that's because Jesus, friends, is the better Samaritan. He is full of compassion. He is the better neighbor. He is the one full of mercy. And it's the compassionate and merciful Jesus that we want our neighbors to see through our neighboring. I think that is what's at the heart of the parable of the Good Samaritan. So as we close this morning, I think a legitimate response would just be to simply ask this to Jesus. Jesus, will you show me my next step so that I might go and do likewise? What's my next step? Not your thousand next steps. Don't, don't overwhelm. Is there one? One next step, Lord Jesus, of what it might look like to inhale intentionality, exhale prayer, and step into it. Inhale intentionality, exhale prayer, step into that neighborhood where you live. Inhale, exhale, step into that neighborhood where you work. Inhale, exhale, step into that neighborhood where you rest in those broken places. My hunch 
is that all of us have at least one next step. And so ask Jesus. Respond. Jesus, would you make this clear so that that neighbor might have a chance to hear about the grace and mercy found in you? In hearing these things, does anyone feel their desperate need for Jesus? Your pastor does. 99% of you don't, and so I'm going to be coming to you after my sermon today to ask how you don't find yourselves desperate for Jesus right now in this moment. Yeah, I think the aim of this is not to be like, all right, let's go hit it, and we storm out the door, and we just go, like, right, we're supposed to hear these things and do what the gospel calls us to do always, which is lean on Christ in pure and absolute desperation. So my invitation is going to be to do right now like what we did a couple of weeks ago, pray. Seek the Lord in response. If you need to bend your knees, if you need to lift your hands, if you need to go find someone else this morning, the band's going to be playing, and this is just what we're going to pursue right now. God, would you make it clear, an actionable next step for me, And then my encouragement would be, maybe just go tell someone else in your Jesus family, this is what Jesus called me to do today. Get that accountability. And then begin to move forward trusting in him as you walk in obedience. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, just as people begin to process what this looks like to respond to these things this morning, Lord, we don't want to just be hearers of the word, but we do truly want to be doers. And we're not doing to earn, but we're doing out of the overflow of everything you have earned, everything that you accomplished at the cross. So Jesus, I pray right now, by the power of the Spirit, would you show my brothers and sisters just what does that next best step look like so that they, we, I, us, we may go and do likewise. Lord, my hunch is that some of us need help. But because the sin of pride rules and reigns in our hearts, we don't go ask for help. Lord, would you pour contempt on all of our pride? Help us to do this. Lord, for some of us, the temptation to pride might look like this. Hey, I'm doing it. Why isn't anyone else doing this? where we look down on our fellow Jesus family because we have our act together and they don't have their act together. Why can't they be more like us? Lord, that's pride. And as the Jesus family, would you again bring us to the place where we pour contempt on that version of pride? Humble us, Lord Jesus, to recognize that you, the ultimate neighbor, neighbored us at the cross The resurrection, you welcomed us with open arms and we now find life in you and that's our desire is to live in that way. Show us how to walk trusting and obeying. For your name and for your glory, King Jesus, I pray these things. Amen.